The other day, my eye doctor asked how the kids were doing. And then she said, oh, they must be great. The holidays are coming up. But just a couple of days before that, my nine-year-old admitted they'd already ranked the most stressful things about the holiday season. Number one, buying presents. There are things about your kids you can't take credit for, and others you can. Unfortunately for my kids, I think I can take credit for that one. The holidays are a good excuse to treat the people you love. And it is so satisfying to give someone a good special gift. It doesn't have to be big, just thoughtful. But sometimes it takes a lot of thought. Combine that with feeling like money's tighter than you'd like, and that becomes just one of a number of stressful aspects of this season of joy and celebration. Luckily for my kiddo, they're young enough that they don't seem to be too troubled by complicated family psychodynamics. This week on Interstates, we're trying to avoid Christmas. Mostly, we're going to fail. That's coming up after the break. It's Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. Let's start our complicated feelings about Christmas episode with a Christmas story. Though, heads up, it starts out a little darker than your average Christmas story. So there's a junkie, and he's looking for someplace where he can get a fix. And he has all of these adventures. He fires us. He finds a suitcase that he thinks he can pawn. When he opens it up, there's some body parts inside. And so he has to get rid of the body parts and then try to pass it off as a clean suitcase. So he goes to all these various places trying to get money. He goes finally to this very sketchy doctor to get something, get some morphine or something. And he gets just the tiniest amount, just enough so that he thinks, okay, not enough to get me high, but enough to get me like through this uncomfortable period that I'm going through. So he, he checks into this ratty hotel. He's getting ready to shoot up, and he hears this horrible groaning from the next room. And he finally, and just being kind of a crotchety old junkie, he decides that this is a downer. So he goes <laughs> next door to try to find out what is going on with this guy. And it's this young kid who has a terrible case of, truly a case of appendicitis. He's in terrible pain. He, he's tried going to the clinic and they wouldn't treat him because he wasn't from that area. And because since that was an excuse that junkies often use to get morphine, they thought that he was a, that the kid was a junkie. So our main character heaves this huge sigh and decides he's going to be he's going to be a hero. And so he shoots this kid up with his his one little last remaining bit of morphine and decides I don't know how I'm going to get through the night but okay, I'll get you through the night. So the kid relaxes and blisses out and goes to sleep and our 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 narrator goes back to his ratty little room and sits on the bed and thinks, oh, well, great, now what am I going to do? And suddenly, this miracle happens, and he feels this warmth coursing through his body. <laughs> and what has happened is that he says, I've scored for the Immaculate Fix. It's like this miraculous... <laughs> It's just, it's, it's just hysterical. That's my Burroughs Christmas story. <laughs> that was Indiana University professor Joan Hawkins recounting The Junkie's Christmas by the great beat writer William S. Burroughs. He's most famous for his novel Naked Lunch, and he was a somewhat notorious addict himself. I want to stick with Burroughs for a little bit because I think he'll help illuminate some of the tensions we're exploring in today's episode. So, 
Let's admit that this Christmas story is out of character for Christmas stories in general. Even so, it's surprising that Burroughs decided to write one at all. He was a very dark, dark character in that he believed that it's almost like we would think of cultural hegemony, but he, for him it had even a more sinister connotation. He talked about control, mm. that we, we all exist under the, under the thumb of, if it were, this thing called control, and that we go around leading our lives believing that we have some amount of freedom. But really, unless you go off onto the land, as he often would do, and just cut yourself off as much as you could from these other power sources, really none of us are free. And uh, I think he would say that for people who, who don't believe, who don't believe, he believed in magic with a K, so he believed like curses could be thrown on you. And he believed in this, as I said, this thing called control. And I think uh, for him, he would say, like, if you don't believe in that, if you don't believe in magic or you hear me talking about control and you don't think that that's correct, it's because you're living under an illusion. You've been skating under the radar. And you've been skating under the radar so long you think that you're lucky and you think you're immune and you're not immune someday. Someday your number will be up and you'll realize like, oh my God, I was a pawn in the game all along and I didn't realize it. Sounds like the Matrix before the Matrix. Yes, but not just the Matrix. I want to make the case that a lot of classic Christmas movies are also about this thing Burroughs called control. Take It's a Wonderful Life. As he's growing up, small town boy George Bailey has this plan to see the world. Italy, Greece, the Parthenon, the Colosseum. His dream isn't greedy in a traditional sense. It's just one that's focused on himself. But of course that dream gets thwarted at every turn. He's saved up enough money to travel, and then his father dies. And he has to run the savings and loan company so the Scrooge like Mr. Potter doesn't get it. Life keeps throwing his plans off track. And one Christmas Eve, he decides to throw himself into a freezing river. But through the intervention of an angel named Clarence, who's always kind of reminded me of my grandmother, he sees what the world would be like if he had never lived. Everyone is miserable. Finally, George Bailey gets to return to his old life, this time with the knowledge that the care he's given his community and the love he's gotten in return is really what makes life wonderful. It's that classic Christmas epiphany that what really matters is the people around you, not the fancy experiences you might have had, the money you could have made or spent. George Bailey broke through the matrix of trying to achieve things just for himself and saw the reality that his life was bound up with others. Okay, I'm just going to note, I know Elf has become another Christmas classic, and it was looking for a way that's also a critique of control, the capitalist hegemony of buying things, acquiring more money and more stuff. But it seems like the message of that one is that if you give yourself up to truly believing that Santa Claus lives at the North Pole with a bunch of elves and flies around in a sleigh powered by Christmas spirit, you'll end up with a book deal that makes you rich. Not every Christmas classic is about the tension between commercialism and celebration. Still, so many of them are. A Christmas Carol, The Grinch, A Charlie Brown Christmas. And the reason we gobble them up at this time of year, of course, is that as we wander through the mall or scroll through Amazon trying to check one more thing off that list, we're desperately trying to remind ourselves what this is all about or what we want it to be about. Because for all the joy and celebration and family, 
It's also a great time of year for retailers. Which brings us back to William Burroughs. As I mentioned, he was mostly famous for his writing, but he was also, as Joan Hawkins put it, a notorious heroin addict. People tend to think, because of the the foreword to Naked Lunch, people tend to think that, you know, he went through this kind of horrific cure and but and then remain cured for the rest of his life and and he really didn't he was in and out of you know periods of addiction for his entire life and that constant relationship with drugs gave him some insight into a bigger system that he was part of unless you're born to an addicted mother no baby is born needing heroin so you become addicted to the drug and as soon as you become addicted to the drug your need increases as soon as you develop a certain tolerance, then you need more, then you need more, then you need more. You're totally dependent on the person who supplies it to you, and that person jacks up the price and does these various things to make you aware of how dependent you are. So they create artificial scarcity. They keep you waiting. They never come on time. There's this great line in Lou Reed's song, Heroin, you know, the first thing you learn is you always got to wait. And they make you wait until you're really sick so that you realize how dependent you are on them, lest you think you can survive without your supplier. And, um, And so it's this this absolute, I'm making a little triangle with my fingers. It's like these fat cats on top who have created need at the bottom. And what you have are people who, as the need increases, they're struggling and struggling and struggling, doing anything they can to make a little bit of money so that they can get this thing that they wouldn't have needed if the need hadn't been created for them. He, he called it the junk economy, the pyramid of need. And he said that uh, the way that junk works is exactly the way capitalism works, that this, is a, that this is an addictive economy that we live in. I was watching commercial TV the other night, and it started, right, all of the ads. And all of the ads are always about show them that you love them. It's always this idea that she will love you if you give her this thing and show her that you love her. And it's like, like you know what, like taking her out to dinner wouldn't be enough or just a kiss and let me take care of the kids for a while and you can have some time. That wouldn't be enough. No, it has to be diamonds, right. you know. It's because we love our partners, our children, that we want to get them their fix. I don't know. Maybe it's not as complicated for you as it is for me. Maybe you grew up at more of a remove from all the ads. Maybe your parents hardly celebrated holidays at all. That was the case for Yane Sanchez-Lopez. For Yane, growing up, the holidays were mainly a time people got off work and school. Her family was Christian, but they didn't really celebrate. Holidays meant long weekends. At best. Easter, we didn't have days off, so we just, like, I went to school in the morning, I came back in the afternoon. And that was it. Mostly, it felt normal. But... There was part of me that I can remember that was just like, I feel like I'm missing something. Like, why am I not as excited as everybody else? Like, something's not right. It's not that her family didn't have any traditions. There were the goats. Yeah, that's what we would eat for these holidays because even though we're not celebrating them, people, like my family still comes together and they'll they'll eat a lot. 
Of course, that tradition didn't help her feel more like a part of things. I went to somebody's farm and they had goats and I was like, oh my gosh, are you going to eat these? And they were like, no, they're just here. Here for what? I was like, usually when people have like chickens, they're like, oh, we're going to eat them. Turkeys, we're going to eat them, you know? People don't eat goats. And I guess it's about time I told you where all this holiday avoidance comes from. Yanni's parents are Mexican. They moved to the U.S. before she was born. And on its own, being Mexican obviously doesn't mean you don't celebrate holidays. But... My parents don't feel like anything in the U.S. belongs to them. Especially holidays. But not just the holidays. They don't feel any entitlement to U.S. things and culture. Even when I hear them talk about politics and, like, injustices done towards minorities or, you know, our people. They're like, well, like, what do you expect? Like, this isn't our country. Like, this is normal. Like, they say it in such a way where they don't expect any justice because they know they're not from here and so they don't think that they're entitled to it, which is a very sad reality. The holidays seemed especially American to Yanni's parents, and American culture was not what they were looking for when they came to Indiana. The way my parents view American culture is that it's never stops and that it's very materialistic. There's always this idea of buying like new things, which has been implanted in me. I've been raised here, but my mom loves to go like thrift shopping. She loves to save money. Like she doesn't like to spend money on new things. She doesn't see the value of it. And I feel like especially Christmas is very capitalistic and very materialistic. Like children want these new toys or, you know, they want the newest technology. And I don't think my parents were very fond of that. In Mexico, they lived a very slow life. Yeah, they worked. That's that's not. But like my dad used to go fishing and he would go catch crabs. You know, and this was a very simple life. And they lived up in the mountains and they did their own hunting. Um, My mom took care of the children. It was a very slow life and very humble. And you didn't really ask or look for more, which is kind of what I feel like Christmas is about sometimes a little too much. There's other things a part of it, but we can't lie and say that. It's not about gifts. Sure. And it's not that they're opposed to gifts in general. Gifts are important in Mexican culture. It's very disrespectful if you get a gift and you, like, re-gift it or you throw it away. Mm -hmm. That is considered, like, to be the ultimate disrespect. You don't do that. Like, like I've heard people mention this and it blows my mind that they could re-gift something. Like, that's an abomination to us. Her parents did show their love. They did give me gifts for Christmas. Were they wrapped under a tree and did I not know ahead of time? No. You know, it was a very like, hey, we're at the store. Christmas is coming up. Pick out a jacket. You know, like it was like that. It wasn't like, oh, make a list for Santa Claus. I didn't believe in Santa Claus. It's true. Yane did not believe in Santa Claus. She doesn't feel like she missed out on that one. And... Really, in general, she wasn't that into Christmas. She agreed with her parents. It was materialistic and commercial. Then she moved out of her parents' house. What's your relationship to the holidays now? It's very complicated because I 
so badly want to participate. But I've also realized that there's something more to the holidays than just having like a Christmas tree. So like I mentioned before, I live in my own apartment and I did want to decorate for Christmas. But seeing the way my boyfriend's family celebrates Christmas, I understood that I could go to Target, I could buy my little tree, could buy my little ornaments, I could put it all up, but it's more than the aesthetic and what you see. Her boyfriend's family has been doing the whole American Christmas for a long time. They put up these ornaments that some of them are heirlooms. Some of them, like, were made by, like, my boyfriend when he was a little kid, you know, you know, like getting a little clay thing and putting his hand in his finger, whatever. So they came with, like, time, history, connections. It's more than, like, that 30-pack of ornaments. That's the only thing I could have. Which is how you had been seeing Christmas before. Yes, I thought Christmas was, like, the stuff you could get at Target. (laughs) Right. To put it very (laughs) shortly. Yeah. But it turned out, as I, like, was genuinely exposed to people who celebrated these holidays, it comes with that, like, memories almost, you know? Have you ever seen The Grinch? And I mean the short version of The Grinch, the cartoon version. No. The Grinch like hates Christmas and all this stuff. And he takes away all the presents and the trees and all the stuff, all the boxes and bags. And uh, is so happy to have, or so pleased with himself, I don't think he's ever happy, to have stolen all this stuff and stolen Christmas. And then the Who's down in Whoville, he hears them, the strain of the song, they start singing. And he realizes his heart grows three sizes and he realizes Christmas is about so much more than the stuff. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it's a similar thing. Exactly. That's exactly what it's like. And because I have this complicated relationship, I was like, how am I going to find a middle ground? Because for the last 10 years, 20 years, I'm, I'm 20 years old, I haven't created this history to add on to like my tree or these traditions to continue on. And I just found that like I have to start from scratch, which is not easy but it gives me a lot of room to make it what I needed to be for myself and I think that's really important so recently my boyfriend and I we went to a pottery place that we've gone to many times before it's called Busy Bees in Maryville Indiana it's it's in the mall and you go and you pick out these like clay things and you paint them and then they put them in a kiln and then you get them two weeks later and it's beautiful clay work or whatever pottery And we went in and we made decorations. And I actually made a cat decoration. And I made it look like my cat. Um, So I realized, like, hey, you know, part of having a tree is having these ornaments that have meaning. So let's go and actually make these ornaments that have meaning to us. At its core, like in the Grinch, right? There's something more special, and it's community, family, coming together. And I guess Christmas is like a really good excuse to do all of that. Because especially in America, with such a fast-paced life, you don't get to usually do that. And I think that that is like why Mexicans maybe, or at least my family didn't, because they had been used to a life where 
they had such a slow life. They had always done this, but it did change, obviously, when they came to the United States. And I guess they just didn't see it that way that, oh, we can come together now. But um, I think my mom is starting to see it more this way because she wants to make tamales for Christmas, which she hates making because it takes a lot of people. It's a really big mess. Also, you can just buy them. So easy to just buy them, like tortillas. But I was talking to her and she was like, you know, I'll make tamales if you make them with me. So I think it's this idea of like, even though it's a really big labor of love, it's going to be spread across and it's going to be with someone like my daughter or like my family. And then everybody gets to enjoy these like super delicious tamales, you know? The tamales weren't the only sign of her mom's attitude changing. Like, right before we talked, her mom had decorated for the first time. I was like, Mom, why did you decorate this year out of, like, the two decades that we've lived here? And she goes, oh, me entró el espíritu navideño, which means the holiday spirit, the Christmas spirit has entered my body. That's what she said to me. And I was like, after two decades... I was like, that doesn't, that's not very rational. I was like, there's something else going on. Um, I think it's my nieces and nephews. When Yane and I decided to do this interview, I had the impression she was pretty anti-Christmas. So when she came into the studio, I was surprised by her sweatshirt. So it's bright red. Yes. It's Christmas red, and it's got teddy bears on it. Yes. Playing, uh, there's one in the middle is playing the drums, mm-hmm. and one playing, I guess, like a cello or mm-hmm. maybe a sideways violin. Like a trumpet. And a trumpet, but they're wearing sort of Christmas-themed colors, plaid vests, red and green, and it just, even though I guess I'm looking at it, I don't see Christmas decorations, but it feels very Christmassy. I think the colors, especially yeah. red and green. Yeah. She's pretty much going all in on Christmas. I do want to have some Christmas traditions that are typical in the U.S., but um, I do want to still maintain some of my ideology. Like, yeah, they're, I just can't get around lying to my kids about Santa Claus <laughs> being real. I don't know what it is. It's just not happening. How do I explain to them later on that he's not real and that I've lied methodically for the last, I don't know how many years, you know? I just, like, how do I tell them, that was actually your dad. That was not Santa Claus. I'm so sorry that... They'll be crushed. Exactly. How am I going to deal with that? Staying off the Santa Claus bandwagon, or sleigh, I guess, uh, might simplify a few things for her. It might make it easier to stick with other parts of the tradition. Which, at this point, she seems pretty invested in. For Yane, the stakes go way beyond her own family. I am pro-Christmas because I think, like, America needs it, actually. I would argue that America needs Christmas because, yeah, it's when do you get to be around all your family? Mm-hmm. When is it acceptable? And when do you get, like, actual breaks? Yanni's right. The intensity of American work culture makes it really hard to catch a break. So, in the spirit of the season, let's actually take one right now.
All right, we're back. It's the Interstate's Complicated Feelings About Christmas special. And I feel complicated that it's all about Christmas. So let's listen to some music about another important winter holiday before we get back to our complicated feelings. Hanukkah, oh Christmas. I still want to hear stories about Hanukkah, or Yule, or Kwanzaa, or Diwali, which is earlier, I know. However you celebrate, if you've got complicated feelings about it, or how your celebrations relate to Christmas, let me know. In the meantime, in most of the U.S., Christmas reigns supreme. It's like the king of kings of holidays. Even when you try to create a whole new tradition, Christmas is still there in the background as is the case for the family in the next story. Jillian Blackburn went to talk with them. Welcome, newcomers. The tradition of Festivus begins with the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people. Now you're going to hear about it. If you know, you know. But if you don't know, that's a clip from the season nine episode of Seinfeld, The Strike the very episode that brought the sacred holiday of Festivus to the attention of the Gratis family. At first it was kind of like, oh, haha, we'll watch the we'll watch the episode and we'll, you know, put up the poll. But now it's like it's a set day. It's a holiday. We have a schedule, things we do, you know. The true history of Festivus began in the home of Seinfeld writer Dan O'Keefe, whose father, like the show's Frank Costanza, wanted to invent a holiday that avoided the religion and commercialism of Christmas. It's like a rejection of like what Christmas is. So like it's kind of supposed to be like anti-consumerism in a way. Aaron and Michael's family has been celebrating their own version of the holiday for over a decade, and what was once a simple recreation of the Costanza family traditions has evolved into a day to celebrate all of Seinfeld, which might be the true religion in the Greta's household. We watch the same episodes every year. We had to buy like a special paella pan that we only use once a year. So now, along with a metal pole and airing of the grievances, the family has also incorporated other parts of this sacred text into their festivities. For example, they discovered paella in an episode on the same DVD as the Festivus episode. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, kind of different. I've known Aaron and Michael since grade school, and I've been aware, if not a bit jealous, of their family's Festivus celebration. But throughout my conversation with them, I noticed not only a shared and perhaps religious love for Seinfeld, but also a family connection like none other. It started off with us just putting up a poll. But for the first, I would say, seven years, I think until, yeah, maybe like five years ago, um, my dad, uh, instead of buying like a poll stand, you know, he would he would buy one from a hardware store, but then he'd return it like the day after (laughs) because we would use it once a year. Their parents are just as much of a part of the celebration as they are, and their mom never fails in her duty to air her festivist grievances. In, like, 
all of our Christmas photos for the, from the past like five years, there's this aluminum pole in the corner that just kind of looks like a stripper pole um, that my mom, she's, she, that's one of her biggest grievances is that there's this aluminum pole or stainless steel pole in the corner of our kitchen in like half of our Christmas photos. As we talked about festivist traditions and outlooks on the future, I had one very important question in mind to wrap up our conversation. Have you ever defeated your dad in a feat of strength? Well, it's typically me that will take on the challenge, but it's also, it's usually not my dad. It's usually my uncle because, I don't know, he's a bit younger and more willing to, you know, wrestle me. But no, I've lost every single year. He's just very good at bombarding all of my senses and I just kind of get, I kind of get flattened to the ground. So yeah, uh, hasn't happened yet, but I'm, you know, hoping that this will be the year. Um, should probably get some training in. Nothing, it's a card from my dad. What is it? <laughs> Dear son, happy Festivus. What is Festivus? It's nothing. It's nothing. When George was growing Jerry, up, no. his father no. hated all the commercial and religious aspects of Christmas, yeah. so he made up his own holiday. Oh, and another piece of the puzzle falls into place. All right. And instead of a tree, didn't your father put up an aluminum pole? Oh, Jerry, no. stop it. And then weren't there feats of strength that always ended up with you crying? I can't take it anymore. I'm going to work. You have me now. Jillian Blackburn. Jillian runs our social media here at Interstates. This was her first story on the show, and I am very excited for more. Okay, we've heard two stories about people making their own traditions. But another way to approach the holidays is to hold fast to the traditions that are already there. The old ones. Sometimes the really old ones. Caroline Tatum studies some of those traditions in Ireland, and, well, she comes by her research interests honestly. My mom was dressed up as a clown and my grandpa was dressed up in his in his traditional gear. So it's just like, okay, these people are scary. <laughs> like, what is wrong with my family? <laughs> yeah. This feel it feels like it was like a moment of realization. Yes, it was. It was realizing that we're weird and I I can't get out of it. I'm kind of just stuck stuck in it. If I don't understand it, I'll never understand it and that that memory kind of motivates me to do what I do now, where I'm just like, it's worth understanding this. This is part of who I am. It's worth grappling with. Um, and I think it's just part of thinking about what makes you human. You know, dressing up and acting like someone other than yourself is just like part of addressing who are you. So if you're not who you are, who are you? <laughs> I'm Caroline Tatum. I'm currently doing my PhD in Indiana University for folklore and ethnomusicology with a minor in linguistics. I think I have to just break down a little bit of like what the mummers are. Please do. Because you're probably just like, what? So um, basically, Two Street is a street in Philadelphia where there's New Year's associations. There's these clubhouses for these mostly like fraternal secret societies. Women only joined in like the 70s. It was, it's been men since like the dawn of time. Um, 1901 is when the parade first started. Before that, it was just people randomly getting out in the streets in costumes and masks. And they also had a tradition of shooting guns and they were called like the New Year's shooters. But then when they made it a parade, they wanted to make it more like quaint and traditional. So they called it the Mummers, which is like a thing in England and Ireland and. Um, 
it's not exactly the same thing at all, but okay. they put that name on it. And it's a parade. So people spend the entire year getting ready for this one day. And there's string bands. That's like the most prominent group. And they perform with like violins and saxophones and basses and drums and all of that and banjos. And they wear costumes and they have choreography. So they'll act out like a skit. Every year they have a new theme. They pick out the theme like the day after the parade and start getting ready for the next year immediately. Their themes, they're a little infamous because their themes can be like, sometimes it's like Star Wars and other times it's like Native Americans. So, you know, I can't talk about it. Like it's just this innocent tradition. It has a dark side. And yeah, my grandpa, so his story is like, um, he was raised to just be musical, piano as a kid. And one night he was laying in bed in his like Philadelphia apartment and he heard a banjo and he got out of bed and he went over to the guy on the street and was like, teach me. And the guy was a mummer. So in six months, he learned the banjo and was performing in a mummer's band. And he was only 12. And he finished school around that age, started working at a factory. And this became his life where he would make money playing gigs, like going to bars and playing with his bandmates because you know they're a band like they they do this thing in the costumes but they also just go to bars and play music okay. they're musicians so they, they they do it all the time um and the, i mean these bands are huge they'll be like 50 people they're not like a six-person band yeah. they're like quite substantial because yeah. they're primarily for the parade yeah yeah right. so you need okay. a lot of people to march right. yeah. yeah and that was um that was something you saw him doing as you were growing up yeah, every year we would watch it on TV because it's on the local channels. So we would always be like, he's famous, like Grandpa's famous, we're going to watch him on TV. And my dad would do like backline, like he would help move the props. And so you would see, see like him in the background and be like, that's dad. So we felt like we were a famous family because of this tradition. We thought we were super cool. But yeah, like to me, that is Christmas, like seeing him on TV and getting all the excitement of getting ready for that. That was basically my Christmas. And I thought that everyone's grandpa was a mummer. I thought that a mummer is what a grandpa is. And it took me a long time. I was maybe 10 when I was talking to another kid and I was like, well, you know, the mummers and like grandpas and Christmas. And they're just like, what are you talking about? And then other people were like, yeah, I've heard of that. And I'm like, but you don't do it. And I was confused that it's actually like right in your face. It's like bright colors, downtown Philadelphia. But a lot of people have never heard of it or they have and they're not involved. But I feel like pretty lucky that I grew up around this. It was my family's one thing that we did that was like cultural or like social or meaningful. Otherwise, everyone just went to work and came home, you know? But this was our one thing that was like, this is what we do, it's special. I was interested in Ireland. I was doing an Irish studies MA. Um, So I went to Ireland to take some summer classes and then I decided to meet these Irish mummers. And I met them at a... Festival of Lunasa. Lunasa is one of the quarter days in the Celtic calendar that's halfway between the solstice and the equinox. So it's a thinning of the world. It's like a magical moment. And I was at a festival where they were burning the wicker man. 
And I get there, and the mom, I thought I was just going to watch the show, be a spectator. It's all I've ever been with the mummers. I was going to do an interview, watch the show, take notes. They're like, you would look really good dressed up. And I'm like, sure, thanks. And then they just put a costume on me and a mask over my head. And they take me out to the, um, to the performance space, which is a round room. So you can't leave because you're surrounded by the audience. So I was like, I'm in the deep end. Um, so I just danced and I, I, I got really, I was a little stressed because I'm not a, I don't see myself as a performer. Um, but I liked the music. It was Irish traditional music. So I just like enjoyed the music and danced. Um, and then I had a spiritual experience right afterward. I did a meditation with a guide and it was very profound. Like I was crying. I felt like I connected with my ancestors and I left the world behind and came back. And I said, you know, I feel like I died. And they were like, oh, that's good because that's what this tradition is about. And I'm like, are you like, what? And then I've done more research. It is actually about death and resurrection. The Irish Mummers play, it's a play. You have two heroes. They boast about all their heroic accomplishments in rhyme. And then they have a sword fight and one of them dies. Um, someone gets a quack doctor to come who lists off like what he can cure, what his medicines are. And they're like Bumby's bacon and gray cat's feather. Weird. So... Then they say something usually like hocus pocus a la campaign, rise up dead man and fight again. So then they will like rise up, rise, raising from the dead. And there's all these other characters that just come and give rhymes and they collect money at the end. And this goes door to door. So it's in the kitchen. These plays take place in the kitchen. Of people's houses. Yeah. In the countryside. Yeah. And it kind of has moved on to being in bars at community halls because you get a bigger audience. Um, But traditionally, it's a door-to-door tradition. And it's usually in December or St. Stephen's Day, which is the day after Christmas or New Year's Day or like any time before the Epiphany. So it's it's a holiday season celebration to a lesser extent than they used to be, as you can imagine, like with any tradition. And you have TV and things like that. You don't want to have the guy come into your house and just like rattle a can for money and tell rhymes. What do they actually do with the money? Um, drink. Or okay. Have, I yeah. See. Or have it's a like... ball. It's a time to rethink community too, like the holidays. Like it's about exchanging gifts, but also entertainment. Like in Ireland, it's about giving food to the mummers and then them giving you a show or giving them money and then they save it for a dance. And like I said on the phone, like um, sometimes Protestants and Catholics would only ever dance together on that one night. It would actually bring people together in a way that they would never get together otherwise and celebrate their common bonds of like, yeah, we're just people that live together. Like it doesn't matter what our religion is. Like we're all friends now. And I think that has to do with carnival too because Christmas and carnival go together in the sense that they're about community coming together and putting aside the everyday in exchange for something special. So in a way, like, the mummers are very much in line with the Christmas spirit. You know, like, in a way, it's like this really tangential, weird, folkloric thing. But in another way, it's like right at the heart of what is Christmas. 
That was Caroline Tatum. Caroline is a PhD student in Indiana University's Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology. All right, it's time for another break. When we come back, we'll think about what kids really want and ask why William Burroughs decided to write a Christmas story in the first place. Stay with us. Welcome back. I'm Alex Chambers, and you are listening to the Interstate's Complicated Feelings About Christmas special. Our theme is that age-old Christmas question of how to deal with, well, capitalism, and especially our addiction to stuff. Joan Hawkins, she's our resident scholar of William Burroughs and the Junkies Christmas, said studies with kids show that what they really want from their parents is time and attention. You know, like... Just put the laptop completely away and play this game with me. But our society makes it very easy to get distracted from that. This is very autobiographical, but I remember that my parents were small business people. And so for them, it was, the, it was doubly this. It was on the one hand, you know, all this stuff is a marker of how much we love you, but also it was a marker of our success in the world. The fact that all the, this backbreaking labor that we've been doing that there is a reason why we're doing it, because we can afford to give you this Christmas. And so Christmases were often quite lavish in my house, which, given the rest of my life, didn't necessarily make sense. My dad was a bartender. My mother was a cocktail waitress. Um, and they went, went in and out of you know owning bars or owning men and boys' clothing stores. And I never understood the connection <laughs> between the two of them. Like, one decade they would own a bar, and the next decade it would be a men and boys' clothing store. <laughs> But um, it would be all of these things. And then we would end up like we would end up going to visit friends all day on Christmas. So I wouldn't even be able to really play with them. And so it was like this endless. And that was sort of when I look back on it now, I I thought, you know, well, yes. And that sort of it sums up kind of what I felt like my relationship with my parents were as a kid. Like what I wanted was time with them. I couldn't have time with them. There was always this promise of largesse and and plenitude. But then it would be kind of cut off in some sort of weird way. And so for Christmas, there would be, I would come out, none of the toys were wrapped. They were all just on display in this sort of, you can imagine as a child, just like, oh my God, this huge razzle-dazzle. And then we would go to church, we would come home, we would have breakfast, and then we would go on this trek of visiting all of my parents' friends. All day I could take one toy, one toy, into me. From this, from this toy store that you had seen the, in the morning. Exactly. And, and go to each and every friend. And then when we would come home, it would be sort of too late to play with my toys. So it was just this kind of weird, weird thing that... Kind of heartbreaking. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know, I spent my whole life trying to get over it, but... (laughs) We spend our days trying to get over it, and when Christmas comes around, it gives us this tantalizing promise that maybe something will be different. Maybe, like in the stories, will experience a miracle. Where do you think that story came from for Burroughs? Oh, the, the Junkies Christmas? Yeah. That's a very good question, actually. 
given him, I think it came out of a, a truly deep, ironic sense of humor. You know, that yeah. like looking at all of these miraculous stories, like what would be, what would be miraculous for me? And how silly is the story, the stories that we have around these miracle things that happen around Christmas? You know, it's as reasonable to suppose that your life suddenly is shown to be quite marvelous on Christmas Eve because everybody's coming forward and saying, we couldn't live without you. Mm -hmm. it's, as, it's as unreasonable to expect that as it is for a junkie mm -hmm. sitting in a motel room who has nothing to think that suddenly he's going to feel a speedball coursing through his yeah. veins. You know? yeah. So I think, I mean, I could just see him writing it with a very wry sense of humor. Joan said even though this story has an ironic miracle at its heart, it's also a reminder of how we might relate to the real people around us this time of year. We tend to commercialize this too, but we should be aware in a much more deeply humane way of the fact that this is a terrible, terrible time for a lot of people. Both people who look like they're doing well, but who carry the scars of of all kinds of things in their lives, and also for those poor people who are living out in Seminary Park, who, you know, are not doing well at all. And, you know, now at the same time that we're buying things that have insignias on them, so it looks like if we buy this that some of it's being donated to some charity or something, that often really right down the street there are these poor folks. And, and it's not necessarily the case that you should be going down with a soup as you know, a soup bowl and feeding people, but I think we do need to put more, more pressure on this on the city to do less of the lighting of the canopy of lights and more of the paying attention to the people in our community who could really use a little warmth and light in their lives. Whether you celebrate Christmas or something else, or you celebrate Christmas but with complications, I hope the end of this year brings you abundance in the form of friends, family you get along with, the food and shelter you need, and the ability to share it with others. From WFIU's Inner States, I'm Alex Chambers, wishing you an uncomplicated holiday season. That's our show. As usual, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Aabon Binder, Jillian Blackburn, Mark Chilla, Avi Forrest, Luann Johnson, Sam Schemenauer, Jay Upshaw, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is Eric Bolstridge. Special thanks this week to Joan Hawkins, Yane Sanchez-Lopez, Aaron and Michael Gretis, Caroline Tatum, and Jillian Blackburn for her first Interstate story. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. All right, time for some found sound.
That was an abundance of stones being shoveled into a wheelbarrow. Another one recorded by Patsy Ron. Thanks, Patsy. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks, as always, for listening. Riding back at the top of the hunter's moon.